Amen. Thanks, Terry. Uh, good morning. If I've not met you, my name is Jonathan, one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer. We are in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Mark, uh, which we have titled Walk in His Ways. And this morning, we're going to look at uh, one of his ways as a healer uh, from Mark chapter 5, 21 to 43. So you can, a lot of different ways, follow along uh, the screen behind me, the worship folder. The worship folder actually also has the Pew Bible page uh, or the Bible you brought from home. The only choice that I would discourage you or ask you to not use is your phone. Um, use, a, use a paper or an actual uh, printed Bible, uh, if you would, just to, just to keep you from distraction. So from Mark chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 21, uh, read to verse uh, 43, the end of the chapter, okay? Uh, this is God's word. And when Jesus had crossed in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease, and Jesus Perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And be healed of your disease. Now, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told him to give her something to eat. Would you say with me from Isaiah, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So this is the only sermon in this series that you're going to get from Mark chapter 5, okay? Uh, so either I'm the one dumb enough to preach from Mark 5 or maybe there's something uh, good here, right? So we're jumping backwards a little bit, because last week, uh, Wade <clears throat> excuse me, was in Mark chapter 7, 
we're going back to five, which is a chapter of healings, okay? Uh, that is what happens here, three different healings. We're taking the second half of the, of the chapter. This is where it would be helpful for you to have a Bible, because I just want to review Jesus' travel schedule for a moment. If you go back into chapter four, he is uh, preaching, telling parables, uh, he comes to verse, or Mark comes to verse 35 and says, on that day when evening had come, he said, let's go to the other side. And that's where he calms the storm. Uh, I said in the first service, as Jesus is sleeping while there is a, I mean, let's call it a hurricane. I don't know specifically what it was, but for Floridians, let's call it a hurricane. I tried to sleep through Ian with two Tylenol PM and it did not work. That's how full of fear and anxiety I was. I was so scared, I left my house. I came up here and, and tried to sleep. I, I tried to convince my family to come in the sanctuary so we could look at Jesus while the storm was passing. They didn't want to do that, and the other side's probably more secure anyway. So, anyhow. So, they come to the other side of the sea, Mark 5, verse 1, the country of the Gerasenes, which is a Gentile region. And this story, which I would commend to you, is an amazing story of Jesus healing this demoniac that used to break chains and he would hide in caves and everybody was scared to death of him. No one could do anything about him and Jesus heals him. And the, the, the thing that causes verse 21, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, so goes across, does this healing, back to the other side, the reason for that is in verse 17 of Mark 5, where the people see this crazy freak in his right mind sitting down next to Jesus and they look at Jesus and they say, verse 17, please, please get out of here. They begged him to depart from their region. Why? Because real power is disturbing. Real power is not manageable. But man, does it do some amazing stuff. And so they beg him to leave. And he, this is where we find him in verse 21. He crosses again to the other side. Well, lo and behold, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. I mean, does it not make you anxious just reading this? About He's constantly followed by all of these people. And like, give, give me some space, please, right? Uh, but he doesn't get any. And so in the story, you've got two people, and that's the outline uh, that you see there in your worship folder. You've got two people that I want to look at, and then you've got the power that these two people come in contact with. And what you learn, which is why I put that summary statement there at the top of the outline, we learn that who Jesus heals and also how he heals does show something of his character and his power as a healer, okay? So as we've been looking at how to or what it looks like to walk in his ways, we look at his way as a healer. So first, the people, right? You've got Jairus. Jairus is a man of great moral respectability and public honor. He's a ruler in the synagogue. He probably had a lot of wealth and public prominence. Uh, he's used to his orders being followed without delay. He's used to people telling, uh, excuse me, he's used to telling people what to do and they go and do it. But also, as a wealthy guy, he's probably used to just walking up to influential or well-known people and talking to them. It doesn't intimidate him. And keep in mind, there's this huge crowd around Jesus, and it says, verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, and seeing him, walks right up to him, falls at his feet, and so forth. He's desperate, yes, but what's interesting is Jairus comes to Jesus 
with an offering of advice on how to get the work done. He doesn't just say, if you look there in verse 23, my little daughter is at the point of death, please help. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death, would you come and lay your hands on her? I hear that's an effective way that you do healings. And because of his status, right, he's got the ability and the confidence to, in essence, have a demand in his hand, ready to go. Now, look at his posture. The, Mark says, he fell at his feet and he implored Jesus earnestly. And it does reveal something of the desperation of his situation. One of the things that I want us to do, just looking at this passage this morning, is simply, I mean, I, no other word than worship. I just want you to worship. Not only as we go through this, but also on the back side of it, as you consider Jesus in this story, it's just so amazing. So I hope you're overcome with amazement, uh, maybe not immediately, <laughs> but progressively as we go through. Now, a lot of us can identify with Jairus, right? We're used to giving orders. We're used to solving problems or giving advice uh, because it's how we maintain control of, of situations. I mean, if you're a person whose friends look to you for advice, we like to give it. And a lot of times we like to give it even when we're not asked for it, right? Well, here's what I think you ought to do to solve your problem. But do we approach Jesus like Jairus does? And I think if we're honest, we often come to God for what we need his healing and help with, but we also come to him with advice on how to, well, heal or solve the problem. Here's my problem. Here's how I think you ought to solve it. And here's what's amazing uh, to me. One of many, many things. Jairus says this to him, and Jesus goes with him. He's not controlled by Jairus, as we will learn in just a few short verses, but he's not cold toward his need either. Again, he listens, he goes with him. Now, if you compare him to this woman that we meet. Jesus is heading to the house to heal one man's daughter, and another man's daughter is approaching. Um, I just, I want you to sit on this, okay? I just want you to reflect for a moment. This woman's hemorrhaging blood problem has made her ritually unclean for 12 years, which means, again, you got to get this. That means that she was emotionally, physically, socially, and even spiritually ostracized from the community. So this woman has been living with no community for over a decade. Can you imagine how lonely she must have been? Can you imagine how hungry for friendship she must have been? She's got no capital because Luke tells us in verse uh, 26, right, she suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but actually got worse. So she's got no capital and no hope. She's a complete 180. Of, uh, of Jairus. Her desperation is really fueling her determination to get to Jesus. She's embarrassed and hidden, but all she's got, no hope, no capital, no social status, all she's got are her hands. And she says, if I can just touch his garment. She is the opposite of Jairus in every single way you can imagine. I mentioned a few, here's a few more. She has no name. She hides in the crowd. 
She doesn't walk up and speak to Jesus and say, I'm desperate. I have been having this blood discharge for 12 years. Can you please heal me? She's in the shadows, just in desperation, saying, if I can just touch him, if I can just touch his clothes. There's no offering in her hands. She has nothing to offer Jesus. But if you look there at verse 30, right? So, excuse me, 27, she had heard the reports and she came up to him in the crowd and touched his garment. And immediately, 29, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, verse 30, perceiving that dynamite had gone out from him. It's the first time in the gospel that the Greek word dunamis is used. And he feels that he's lost some dynamite. He loses some of that power so that this woman could gain it for healing in her body. It was a micro-death for him. And if you're new to Christianity or new to Jesus, let me just say we believe that ultimately Jesus would lose his status as a son. He would be exiled, right? He would lose all of his power and be exiled to hell itself so that you and I as long as we simply open our hands, empty hands of faith, and cry out, please heal me, we could be healed. We could be adopted. We could be made a son or a daughter. And, of course, he refers to her that way uh, in the story. But it isn't enough. It isn't enough for Jesus to simply realize power has gone out. Why? Because notice what he does. His power is never separated from his person. Healings are not projects for him. They are people with stories. And so he perceives, he says, who touched my garments? And the disciples are like, are you nuts? I have no idea. Look at all these people. Could be any of these people. He waits. He looked around, 32, to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He says to the guys, I need to find out. I need to find out who touched me. And when she steps forward, he listens to her whole story. Now, put yourself in Jairus' shoes. I just came up to you and told you my daughter is about to die, and you are wasting your time with this woman. She'll probably have it in another 12 years. You can heal her tomorrow. Now, imagine you get word, your only child's dying in the hospital, you have to hail a cab to get to the hospital, you get stuck in traffic, and you happen to notice your driver rolls down the window, starts talking to a homeless drunk. This is a friend of the, dri- the cab driver's, been a homeless drunk for probably 10 years. And as you're about to boil over with rage at the driver, you get a call telling you that your child has died, don't bother coming. That's basically what happened here. This guy, Jairus, is the enforcer of the ceremonial law. He's responsible for making sure that people who come into the synagogue or who come to him and say, I've, this has happened or that's happened, I'm ceremonially unclean, he says, go and do this and return in seven days or return in 30 days or whatever it is, and you'll be clean again. So here is this ceremonially unclean for 12 years. Oh, and she's also a woman. That's another strike. He says, Jesus, you're off task. You aren't paying attention to the task at hand. You've gotten off task, and you're paying attention to this unclean woman. And he's right in the middle of speaking to her. He's right in the middle of listening to her story. When someone comes and interrupts, confirming Jairus' fears, your child is dead. 
don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, <clears throat> I just want you to know, for, and, and you, all, you all, we all feel this way. If somebody says to you, somebody you're getting to know, I mean, it's a really dear thing to say. So tell me, tell me about your life. Tell me about your story, right? I had this opportunity last year. I'm not going to say who it was, but I, I was in the car for 20 hours, 10 hours to North Carolina, 10 hours back, and I had the same person in the front seat the whole 20 hours, and we talked for 20 hours. And I really felt like by the end I knew him and he knew me, right? We love to talk about ourselves. It's our favorite topic. That's supposed to be funnier, but okay. I guess it's not, I, I guess it's not your favorite topic. You're weird. The rest of us sinners, we love to talk about ourselves, right? Man, now, you got to put yourself in Jairus' shoes. Imagine his anxiety. He, he comes up to Jesus. He says, okay, I'll go with you. There's a great crowd. They're moving along. They're moving along. He stops. And minutes after minutes after minutes, this woman had 12 years worth of story she had to tell, tell him about. And we don't know how old she was, so she could have gone back to birth. Could have been two hours or sitting there. What are you doing? This gigantic delay in attending to the woman with a chronic condition while the little girl with an acute condition makes everyone, Jairus, the crowd, the disciples, everyone is desperate for Jesus to hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. But Jesus Christ will not be hurried. Why? Because, well, there's no need to hurry. Because what does he say? Well, this is the best well, they're all the best parts. Verse 35, okay? I love this story. Verse 35, while he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? And Jesus says to Jairus and to us, because I love you, I won't be hurried. Trust me, I know what I'm doing, right? Jesus loved disruptions. He loved interruptions because they kept him slow, and it's one of the most draining aspects of love, is it not, to, to have to pay attention? You know, you know the thing, you're sitting on the couch, you're watching the most important football game of the season. It's fourth and two, they're on the 30-yard line, they're down by, let's call it two, so a field goal would win it. And you just took your kid to Legoland the day before, so you thought, oh, this is satisfied, and I pay $150 for a couple of boxes of Legos, and here you go, play with the Legos. And they're pestering you in the middle of the fourth and two. And you want to hurry them up during the commercial break so you don't miss any of the game. You know what I'm talking about. Jesus loved those situations. We hate them. So when Jairus gets the news of his daughter's death, you would expect him to not trouble the teacher any further. That's what the person says, verse 35. Why trouble the teacher any further? He's expecting him to just move on. But Jesus looks at him, and what does he say? Don't fear. Only believe. I'm coming anyway. So you see this, you see this power uh, that both of these people get to experience, and it's, it's, it's different, sort of. It's tailor-made so if you look there under the power, I said Jesus' healing power is dynamic and far-reaching. It is dynamite. It is powerful. It is amazing. And yet it's so tender and specific. I love that, right? It's a dynamic tenderness. So both of these people experience a power. It's tenderized power from Jesus. And specifically, the woman needed dignity and Jairus needed delay. Now, who do you identify with more this morning? 
Maybe you're in need of dignity. Maybe you're at the end of your rope. Maybe you are, man, I, I, I got nothing else. Uh, or maybe you are feeling rather impatient with God. When are you going to hurry up? When are you going to get done what I need done? Now, uh, in his book, A Praying Life, uh, Paul Miller has a chapter, uh, chapter 21. It's called Unanswered Prayer. Uh, it's a difficult chapter. Uh, in no way, shape, or form do we want to uh, condone or act like there are situations such as abuse and otherwise where I would say to you, oh, that's, that's the desert that you're living in, and you just need to tough it out. I mean, the reading of the law says that God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, and that may mean getting out of that situation. So I, I don't want to minimize that or pretend like that's not a real thing. But unanswered prayer is often where we're experiencing what feels like a desert with respect to something or someone we're praying for that remains unanswered. And what happens is, and there's a, a chart in there, and if you, uh, Paul Miller loves charts, right? But there's a chart in there, and basically it feels like a desert to live in the gap between what we hope God will do and the reality that we see. Twelve years of a blood flow problem, that's her reality. The hope is up here, and this gap is where she's living, right? And so she's longing. But here's the thing, he says, it's the desert where faith is born and nourished and even strengthened. Because you can't pretend like the reality you're facing isn't reality, but you also can't turn your heart off from hope. That's what we find with Abraham and so many other uh, characters in the scriptures as Joshua said, we just read this recently in Joshua chapter, chapter 23. He says, cling to the Lord. Cling to the Lord, right? Paul uh, Miller again says, quote, God customizes deserts for each of us. He takes everyone he loves through a desert. Desert life changes you. It becomes a window into the heart of God. And this is his statement. The clear, fresh water of God's presence that you discover in the desert becomes a well inside your own heart. I love that. Peter says that after suffering a little while, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Of course, what do we all want to know in that passage? Uh, can someone please define a little while? Uh, I, I don't have an answer to that. What I do have an answer to is what he promises God himself will do. Not that you have to strengthen yourself up and get through and sort of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, he says God himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. For this woman, she was experiencing a desert of dignity, right? She was hoping for an impersonal, anonymous healing touch so she could move on. But Jesus Christ is not a cosmic gumball healing machine that you put your quarter in, you take your healing out of the bottom, and you move on with your life. He doesn't do things that way. He... She wanted just a touch. Instead, she got a healing look. She got a stare down. As Jesus listened to her story and publicly, publicly restored her to dignity and a place in the community. In her plan, no one would know she was healed except her. She'd sneak off and she'd enjoy the newness and refreshment of a body not plagued by blood anymore. But when you come to Jesus, you get way more than you bargained for. How does Paul put it? in our assurance of pardon, Ephesians chapter 3, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. You and I can't come up with. We can't think up the things that he is abundantly 
far more able to do. And this woman, while she's hoping for just a healing, she gets a session with God. Tell me about your story. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, that we talk about a lot around here, it's a powerful, profound book. We highly recommend it to you. He says this, the fact that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. And that's what this woman needed. She thought she was just going to be a hotel for Jesus' healing power, but she didn't realize, no, he wanted to abide with her. He wanted to make his home with her. And maybe you need what she needed. Maybe you need a healing. Maybe you're hoping Jesus will simply heal you or solve your problem so that you can move on. But the good news of this passage is Jesus does not indiscriminately heal. He wants your heart. He wants to see you. He wants to hear your story. Because his power and his love are never separate. They always go together, right? Jesus was always using his power to restore and to raise up. He never used it to demean or shame because it had to be so embarrassing and scary for this woman to be outed publicly. That's why she hid. And that's why she comes to him. Look at back at verse 33. She came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. She had no idea what he was going to do. She was very, very frightened. But he says, trust me. I know what I'm doing. Go in peace. She not only gets a new body, she gets a new identity because Jesus calls her daughter in front of everyone. We're watching Jesus do what Peter says in the law reading from 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Again, what are the hardest words of that, what I just read? Uh, at the proper time. What in the world is that? According to who? And surely, this woman was hoping after year one, is that the proper time? Year two, year six, year eight, year ten, is that the proper time? Twelve years in, that's the proper time. And she meets Jesus, and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now for Jairus, he experienced a desert of delay, and I already addressed this somewhat, right? Now, remember, Jesus will not be hurried. Uh, and for Jairus, he, he's, he's, he's got to be boiling over with anxiety at this delay. Now, how do you handle delays? Okay, I do not handle certain kinds of delays very well at all. Traffic delays, terrible at. Amazon delivery delays, Amazon's done such a great work for us the last few years. We've gotten so spoiled that when they, de when they delay by, you know, 24 hours, we go ballistic. Or how about God delaying a healing? Or God delaying fixing a situation that you're facing at home or at work, right? Or in your marriage or in some other relationship. We're all in deserts of delay, and Jairus was hoping that Jesus would keep his daughter from death. But instead, because he refuses to be hurried, Jesus raises his daughter out of death. And not only that, he's trying to heal Jairus of self-sufficiency, of efficiency, of demand. Jesus is seeking to drain him of all that by delaying, by going with him anyway, and by staring him down 
as they say, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's dead. I'm coming. Don't fear. Only believe. He's trying to empty Jairus of power. And in verse 36, with those words, do not, believe, do not fear, only believe, he, he's trying to empty him of fear. Now, uh, Tim Keller has this statement about this passage. He says, if God seems to be unconscionably delaying his grace and committing malpractice in our life, it's because there's some crucial information we don't yet have, some essential variable that's unavailable to us. But, but you can trust him, right? Because Jairus is standing next to Jesus this whole time in this desert of delay. He's got to be thinking, how many more people are we going to stop and heal on the way to my daughter? How long is this going to take? But, but get this, as he watches Jesus, surely as he watches him tenderly heal and restore this woman, he's got to have sensed something different. He's got to have started tasting the heart of God, right? Again, Jesus is saying, because I love you, I won't be hurried. I know what I'm doing. And then what does he do? Well, he gets to the house. The professional mourners laugh at him. You know how I know they were professional? Because they went from wailing to laughing, just like that. They were paid. Jairus was a wealthy guy. So he kicks everybody out. And he says, uh, uh, I, I, need, I need sort of peace and quiet here. And then the king of the universe tenderly reaches his hand out to hold the hand of this little girl. And he says, honey, it's time to get up. His power over death is absolutely stunning. And then he makes sure, listen, what's the last, what's the last verse of the, of the passage? They were overwhelmed with amazement. And Jesus walked outside and said, I have done it. Bow before me and worship. He would have totally been in his rights to do that. But he strictly charged them that no one should know. And then he says, she's got to be hungry. We should give her something to eat. He's the most powerful and yet most practical person who's ever lived. So are you overcome like they were with amazement in just hearing this story? I want to finish with this. Wherever you are experiencing a desert, and we all are, you can know the confidence of God's presence with you. We say the benediction here in a few minutes. That's our reminder each week of that. It's to hear God say, trust me, I know what I'm doing, right? You can know that confidence, but only because Jesus himself, who lived with a perfect confidence in his Father's presence, yet for our sake experienced a loss of that presence, hell itself. We can live in the desert, trusting God's good heart, that after a little while, at the proper time, he alone, and by the way, I don't know what that is. A little while, maybe 24 hours. A little while, maybe 12 years. But at the proper time, he alone will exalt, confirm, establish, and restore according to his tender power. Listen, if you're coming this morning full of way more fear than faith, maybe the desert has exhausted you and you're not sure you can keep going. The slightest faith in Jesus is enough. This is my uh, closing quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, a, a pastor in the 19th century in London. He said, a telegraph wire may shake with the wind and yet convey the electric current, and so may a trembling faith convey salvation from Jesus. A strong faith which rests anywhere but in Jesus is a delusion. That was Jairus' problem, right? 
his, his strong faith was sort of in the demand that he had and the expectation he had and his prominence and place in the community. Contrast that with the woman. Spurgeon says, a weak faith which rests alone on Jesus brings sure salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do confess that in the deserts that we are experiencing or we have in, in the past experienced or the ones that we will experience in the future, we are scared, our faith is weak, and we have a hard time truly believing when you say, because I love you, I'm not going to be in a hurry. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Oh, how we ask for, along with the, the man uh, elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark who said, I believe, help my unbelief. We would say we believe. Thank you that your power is dynamite. It is amazing. It is powerful and profound, and yet it is so tender and specific. Thank you that you do that even for us. Help us to trust you. Help us to know that even though, as the psalmist says, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will not fear, for you are with us. Would that be the, the, uh, the reminder that our hearts so long for as we come this morning? And would you fill us with faith rather than fear? Would we stand in awe as we sing? Would we worship you, Lord Jesus? It's in your name that we pray. Uh, amen. I, the, the, there's a line in that song, <clears throat> I've called the Abba Father, I've stayed my heart on thee. And I thought of it earlier, reminded me of Joshua's words, to cling to the Lord. I've stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl, clouds may gather, all must work for good for me. And the reason you can say must uh, is that's a must of faith. It's a must to say, no, Father, all must work for good for me. I trust you. Trust me, he says, I know what I'm doing. So receive these words. These words are for you to cling to and to hold on to this week as you go into whatever desert he is uh, sending you to and that you're facing. But they're the reminder that as you go, he goes with you uh, to do all the things that this benediction highlights. So receive it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.